welcome to Heart of Life. And I hope that this is a day that you find yourself thankful. Uh, Being able to walk through this last week, I hope that it has been uh, a week where you found yourself thankful for family and friends, thankful for um, some good food, and uh, maybe even thankful for a little football, right? Uh, My wife said at the end of the day on Thanksgiving, she looked at me and she said, you realize that none of the teams we wanted to win today won. And I said, no, but the food was fantastic, so let's eat again. That's kind of how it works. I hope that you had a great, great Thanksgiving. And I, I just want to welcome you today. want to thank you for taking the time, wherever you may be today, that you would join with us. Um, we are studying the journey of the Apostle Paul. And I, I realized this week that if, if the Apostle Paul's God-given mission were to be measured on a track, it would be four laps. It'd be a mile. Uh, three missionary journeys, and then a final journey that Paul makes to Rome as a prisoner. And we find ourselves on the final lap. That's where we are now. We've been journeying through Luke and through Acts. We are on the final lap. Here's what's happened. While in Jerusalem, Paul's enemies have falsely accused him. They accuse him of being against the Jews, of being against God's law, of being against the temple. They made it all up. But uh, we saw last week the Roman authorities had to step in in order to stop the riot that was taking place in Jerusalem and in order to stop them from killing Paul. And we saw how the the commander of the the Roman troops had had invited the Jewish leaders to come to Fort Antonia so that that he could find out what in the world do you have against this man. But when the day was all said and done, nothing was decided and Paul was not found guilty. But it was then that Paul received the most impressive promise. Not from the Jewish leaders, not from the Roman commander, but a promise from the Lord himself. Here's what we read in Acts chapter 23, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And with that one statement, I mean, Jesus speaks a word of encouragement into the heart of Paul. He's like, take courage. It's a word of commendation where he says, what I called you to do in Jerusalem, you did that perfect. You did it to the fullest. Well done. But it was also a word of direction. Paul now knows he's going to Rome. This journey is not over. That's a big promise because the story is on the very next day, there are 40 Jewish men who make an oath that they will not eat or drink again until they kill Paul. Now, I mean, some promises are powerful, but if you make the promise, I'm not going to eat again until we get this done, they are serious. They want Paul done. But remember, the journey, Jesus said, is not over. And so the story is Paul's nephew finds out about the threat. He tells Paul. Paul tells the Roman commander. And before you know it, the Roman commander orchestrates under the cover of darkness, 470 Roman soldiers are moving Paul out of the city to Caesarea where he is kept under guard in what was called Herod's palace under the governor, Felix. Well, Felix very soon again calls the Jewish leaders to Caesarea, and again they brought their charges against Paul, and again Paul was found not guilty. Nothing that they could pin on him. 
And so Felix ordered that Paul be kept under guard. It says that he gave him some freedom in that he let Paul's friends come and and take care of of the needs that, that Paul had. But then as we read at the end of chapter 24, we are given this bit of information. Check it out, Acts 24, verse 27. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Now, there's a lot of things wrong with that verse Why is Paul still in prison? Is it because he's been found guilty of something? No, it's because you've got these governors who are trying to pacify the Jews. They don't want the Jews creating another riot, which then sends word to Rome, which then makes the governors feel bad. And so they're they're playing this game with Paul's life. That ain't right. But you want to know the phrase that I think bothers me the most in this bit of information that we are given. When two years had passed. Two years? Isn't it funny how we can almost read that verse and it's just sort of a a, a phrase? When two years had passed, I mean, two years isn't that long a time until it's your two years of life. If it's my two years of life that you're messing with, it's like, are you kidding me? I mean, if that's me, and I don't think I'm alone in this, if this is most of us, isn't this the point where we're sort of, no, we're yelling, God, didn't you say we were going to Rome? Are we there yet? You ever get what you think is direction from God only to find yourself some days, maybe months, maybe years later walking on what feels like the treadmill of life? Treadmills go where? Nowhere. Right? Not arriving at where you sensed God had made this promise to you where you feel like God was was directing you, I want to talk a little about these kinds of moments in our life today. I'm talking about the moments when we feel like nothing is happening. Oh, I'm praying, that's happening, but the circumstance doesn't seem to be changing. And if we're just going to be fully honest, let's admit it, it means I feel like God is doing nothing. And I want to say, God, we're wasting time here. Well, there is one truth about God, one of the many characteristics of God that neutralizes every negative that we would want to bring to those kinds of nothing-is-happening moments. And when you open your Bible, you don't have to go very far at all before God is teaching you this characteristic about himself. He's, he, he's teaching you about this truth about himself. The, the very opening words, in the beginning, God. God did what he, he created. But, but the reason in the beginning that God created is because in the beginning he was already there. But before there was anything created, he already was. This characteristic of God that we begin to read immediately in the pages of Scripture and which unfolds all the way to its end can be summarized in one word that we call God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty 
it is referring to the, the overarching orchestration of all that happens in time and eternity. I'm going to say that again. The sovereignty of God is the overarching orchestration of all that happens in time and eternity. And I, I, want, I want us to get a little picture of this today, a little picture of, of, of a bigger truth than I, I, I perhaps feel equipped to, to describe. And so I was going to use some, some objects today. I was going to use some, some really con- big containers, I'll be honest. I was going to use some really big containers because we're talking about a really big truth about God. But as the week went on and I got a little selfish and I realized that what would actually work was the ever-popular babushka, right? You got to love the babushka dolls, right? So here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to do. What we read in Scripture is that before even what we would know as time came to be, eternity passed, Right In the beginning, God. Before he has created anything, God says, been there, done that. This is who I am. Then we know that from the moment God created until, until now, I mean, until this day, and, and even the things that you are going to encounter on this day, God says, been there, done that. This is who I am. But also, from this day, moving forward to what we would call the end of the age, right? When when the day comes that this world as we know it, right, is no more, he declares, been there, done that. This is who he is. And even, even the bigness of what we describe as as eternity future, right? Forever and ever and ever, God declares, been there, done that. And so what I want you to see today is that in the entire, right, time and eternity spectrum, from eternity past to the present time to even between now and the end of the age, to even into the, 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 the eternity future, the entire time and eternity spectrum, he says, I am sovereign. Been there, done that. And to realize that when we speak of the sovereignty of God, it doesn't just mean that he knows everything from eternity past to eternity present. The sovereignty of God means it all fits within the palm of his hand. That's what it means. It is the characteristic of God that changes everything in how we see the world. But I also want you to understand that within this big umbrella of God, overarching, orchestrating all that happens in time and eternity, there is also his providence. Under the umbrella of his sovereignty, there is the providence of God. What do we mean by the providence of God? It means he is working in the details of your life too. He's working in the details. He is ordering our steps. And so the truth of the matter would be no matter what you are going through, Whatever you're going through today, whatever you will be going through in the future, right? Whenever there are moments that it feels like everything is just clicking, God is at work. He is ordering our steps. But also in those moments when it feels like things aren't clicking, like even in those moments when it feels like absolutely nothing is happening, 
He is fully invested in the details of your life. Providence means he he goes before you making provision for you. In the Old Testament, providence looks like this. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Now, come on, you can read that line, but then when you understand what the sovereignty and the providence of God is all about, then when you hear God say, I know the plans I have, oh, that changes how I see this. In the New Testament, the providence of God looks like Acts or Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Check this out, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Why? Been there, done that. We read that, but then when we understand the sovereignty and the providence of God, we get it. Okay, I can trust God. He holds and he orchestrates it all. And in those moments when I can't trace what his hand is doing, I can trust his heart. Because he has demonstrated he is fully invested in the details of our lives. God is never not doing nothing. I did that on purpose for all the teachers in the room. God is never not doing nothing. That truth transforms for me, and it can for you, how you handle the nothing is happening seasons of life. Because in reality, something is happening. It is happening. It is just what I call a perceived delay. It appears that God has spoken on something. He said, here's what I want you to do. It seems like we're in a delay here because I'm not yet standing in Rome. My hands, my arms are in chains. This looks like delay. It's perceived delay. But when we understand the sovereignty and the providence of God, it enables us to respond to that perceived delay in a different way than we would otherwise. And today, I just want to give you a couple of practical statements in how this affects my life and yours. Here's the first one. During perceived delays... I don't complain about loss because I trust that my God-given mission is bigger than any circumstances. Right? The sovereignty of God changes this for me. The providence of God, it changes this for me. When I find myself in those perceived delays, I don't have to complain about what I have lost because I understand my God-given mission is bigger than whatever those circumstances are that I'm in. I thought God was directing me toward this particular career. And then I lost my job. I, I really felt like God was leading me to make a difference in, in the lives of, of, of my teammates, and then I got cut from the team. It is those moments when we are to remember that our God-given mission is not confined to a job. It's not confined to a team. My God-given mission, now a new creation in Christ, declaring the greatness of God, it is who I am, where I am. So whether I have that particular job or not does not define. My God-given mission defines. 
And my desire is to carry that out in whatever circumstance I may find myself. So what we're wrestling with here is, which one's bigger? Like, what's bigger? Is my, is my God-given mission the big thing? Or, or sometimes it sounds like my job was the big thing because when I lost it, I, I, I just lost it. It makes it feel like the, being on the team was the big thing. It makes it feel like the circumstance was the big thing. But no, it's not. When it comes to this life to which you and I have been called now in Christ, the faith that we put in Jesus, that he forgives our sin, suddenly it doesn't matter, right, which job we find that God has directed us toward or which team he allows us to be a part of. It affects in terms of the friendships that we have and the family that we are a part of. Whatever our circumstances, they all fall within the bigness of this God-given mission upon my life. I hope you understand today that I am not belittling loss. Because a loss of job is a serious thing to walk through. But I'm saying the sovereignty of God changes how you handle that. It does. The other part of loss that I think about when I read Paul's story here would be a loss of time. And I'm not sure that there is a more protected commodity in the day in which we live, people's time and how they protect it and what they choose to do with it. But here's why this hits home for me. At this point in life, uh, for Paul's life journey, I told you he's on the, the fourth leg of, of, the, of the run. Paul's probably, uh, most likely, he's in his mid-50s. Hmm. Well, that hits a little too close to home. And when you reach that age, I hope that it ought to make us, make us start thinking a little more about the second half, right? I think it's safe to say that when you're 13 or 23 or even 33, you, you may be aware of time and what you want to do with your time, but there's something that happens in our minds and in our hearts when we start checking off 43 and 53. You start thinking about the rest. And I'm admitting to you, being very close to where Paul would have been when this happens to him, I find myself now asking myself more than ever before, what do I need to be doing with the time that God's given me? because there's only so much here. And I can assure you that spending two years in prison is not a part of the vision of my future. Like there are some things I want to be a part of. There are some things I, I hope that God will let me right see, see happen. Being in prison for two years is not part of it. But it's interesting that when we read about Paul in this situation, we're told that he's given a little bit of freedom. We're told that his friends are allowed to come and care for him. Well, I don't think, you, when you read Paul's story, I don't think it's much of a stretch for us to, to imagine the conversations that Paul was still having with leaders of, of churches. And uh, I imagine the prayer meetings that happened in, in, in those guarded, right, wherever he was in a cell, whatever the setting would have been. And I imagine the, the times of prayer. I, I imagine the, the strategy talk that went on in order to see the, the mission move forward and, and for the church to continue to grow. We're told that while Paul was in this time, he continued to talk with Felix. There were multiple times that Felix came and, and wanted to talk to him. And just me, I often wonder how many Roman soldiers we're going to meet in heaven. Because Paul couldn't go anywhere, but if they were in charge of guarding him, they couldn't go anywhere either. Who is the captive audience? 
And you know what he did. You know what he did. What he didn't do was complain about the loss of freedom or time because he knew that his God-given mission was bigger than that circumstance. Complaining is natural for those who don't know Jesus. It ought to be rare for those who follow Jesus. The sovereignty of God will do that for you. Let me show you another one. During perceived delays, I don't compromise my message or my character because God cares more about my heart than my achievement. Now, I wrestled with how to pin this, and so you're going to have to let me give some explanation, all right? I'm going to read it again. During perceived delays, God said we're going here, but we're not here there here yet. I don't compromise my message or my character because God cares more about my heart than my achievement. Now, don't twist my words today. I am well aware, and I believe it with all my heart. God clearly states in his word that a faith without works is what? It's dead. So he expects when a faith is real, there, there are going to be actions that accompany that faith. But I'm speaking to those of us today who on the flip side of that are still acting like God sees value in us for what we can do for him. Some of us who still think that the reason God brings us in and that the reason God wants us close, that, that somehow the reason God loves us is because of what we can pull off for him. And I'm reminded today in Paul's story that when God allows a perceived delay, he's given direction, Paul is trying to follow that direction. But when he allows a perceived delay that I'm not yet where I nor he want me to be, God doesn't love me less. And he wants my heart to stay faithful to him. Therefore, don't sacrifice righteousness in order to speed up the process to meet the goal that God doesn't seem capable of meeting on his own. You see where I'm going? Let me read this text to you, Acts chapter 24, verse 24. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla. Now, Felix has already had conversation with Paul. This is another one that's going to happen. She was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm saying Paul's already talked with him. You know what Paul said the first time. He spoke about faith in Jesus. This would be one of those moments where, okay, I got another setting with Felix. You know what? If I'm going to get out of here, maybe what I talked about last time is not what I should talk about this time. Maybe we should change. You know what I'm saying? Maybe we should change. But he doesn't. He speaks about faith in Jesus, 25. As Paul talked about, check this out, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. If I said that was the next teaching series, half of you wouldn't show up. Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Like, what's Paul dealing with here? Sin. How I fall short of the greatness of God. My, my inability, right, to, to pull that off in my own power. A consequence to that in the future is like, Paul, what are you doing, man? Shouldn't, maybe we should talk to Felix about, I don't know, principles of leadership or something. But he won't compromise his message. 
He just keeps delivering faithfully the message that he knows God has called him to be. And he won't compromise his character. Watch what happens. Felix hears that and he's afraid, which means Paul was quite effective in giving him the truth about here's the consequences, man, right? Felix said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When, when I find it convenient, I'll send for you. Watch where this goes. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a what? A bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. Felix is also hoping, man, maybe, maybe I'm going to pad my pockets here a little bit. I mean, I'm, I'm keeping Paul under, under wraps here because I don't want the Jews stirred up. But you know what? If Paul had to write him out, I, I could probably figure out some way that he mysteriously escapes. Paul knows all he's got to do is bribe him. But if he bribes him, what's me what message is that sending? It is sending a message that, that he has done something wrong, that he, that, he, that he won't be found innocent, and therefore he must take matters into his own hands to clear his name. If he bribes, it sounds like he's guilty. And so he won't compromise his character. Man, my charge to you, when you find yourself in those places, God has promised something, God has directed you towards something, but you are still on the treadmill and you don't feel like you are getting closer at this point to what God has said, do not sacrifice your heart. Do not sacrifice righteousness in order to attempt to speed up the process of meeting the goal that God has not yet met. We are blessed today for some of you to be able to study this before you find yourself in that spot. Because when you find yourself in that spot, those temptations rise. God, will you cement in our heart today this truth that when we find ourselves there, our heart will stay faithful to you. The sovereignty of God will do that for you. In perceived delays, you don't have to complain about loss because you trust that the God-given mission's bigger than the circumstances. In perceived delays, you don't have to compromise your message or your character because God cares more about your heart than your achievement. And then let me just give you one more. The one more goes like this. During perceived delays, I don't fear defeat because if God has called me to something, then he's the only one who can take that something away. <laughs> when I find myself in perceived delay, I don't have to fear failure. Oh, it looks like I'm not going to be able to pull off what God says I'm supposed to do. Stop. The reminder is if that God has called you to something, only he's the one who can uncall. <laughs> Only he's the one who can, who can undo that. My question is, did Felix, politically motivated injustice of leaving Paul in prison, did that frustrate the plans of God? Right? Do you see a God in this story who is wringing his hands going, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Because I already made the promise to Paul. I already promised him. I stood right there beside him and I promised him, you're going to go to Rome. But here we are in Caesarea and, and Felix and, and now Festus, man, they keep putting roadblocks in the way. What are we going to do? No. No. Hear what I'm about to say. No self-centered, corrupt politician, no matter how powerful he or she may be, affects the sovereign plan of God. I hope you heard me. When some person appears to be in the way of your reaching the destination that God has promised you, it's time to ask the question, who is bigger? Them or God? 
And I may not understand why God seems to be delaying, but what I absolutely know for certain every single time is that God is not frustrated because somebody has blocked his plans. So during perceived delay, I don't have to fear defeat. Because if God's called me to something, he's the only one who could take it away. When I was a kid, Corey Tin Boom was a name that I recognized really early in my life. Now, not only because she just has a cool name. Anybody who has the name Boom has a cool name, all right? Corey Tin Boom, um, in 1975, which means I would have been seven years old, her life story was made into a movie called The Hiding Place. So right when I'm a kid, growing up in church, man, her, her story would have been so familiar to me. Um, during the Nazi occupation of Holland in World War II, Corrie ten Boom and her family risked their own safety by hiding Jews in their home. And on February the 28th, 1944, their home was raided and she and her family were sent to a concentration camp where her father and her sister both died, but through a miraculous series of circumstances, Corey survived. And for many years after that, she traveled the world sharing her experiences. And one of the things that would happen when, when, when Corey would share, she would speak with her head down. And as she would speak with her head down, it sort of looked like she was reading her notes. But she was actually, while speaking, working on needlepoint. And after she would tell the story of, of the atrocities that she had experienced at the hands of, of the Nazis, she would then reveal at the end of the talk the needlepoint that she was working on. She would hold up the backside of that needlepoint. And if you've ever seen that, just a, a jumble of colors and threads, it has no discernible pattern. And Corey would say, that is how we often see our lives. Sometimes it makes no sense. And then she would turn the needlepoint around to, to show the image of what she was working on, the finished side, and she would declare, this is how God views your life, and someday we will have the privilege of seeing it from his point of view. Now, I think she's right. According to Scripture, I think it's going to be one of the great joys of heaven I'm reminding you today that our glorified bodies will include glorified minds. <laughs> Which means we will see differently than we have seen before. We, we will understand differently than we have understood before. There will be much more that, that, that we would say makes sense to us. What I also thought about this week, think about what that day is going to be like for all the people in this world whose memories have been stolen by disease or injury. But on that day, they will not only remember who they are, but they will remember who their loved ones are. How good is that moment going to be in heaven? But the greatest picture is that for all of us, the faithfulness of God is going to be revealed in all his glory. Anybody with me today who would say, my life kind of feels like that? And I would go further to say if, if at this particular point you're not willing to say your life feels like that, anybody not willing to say the world feels like that? 
without the sovereignty of God. This is a mess. But with the sovereignty of God, (laughs) there is trust. There is a picture. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. When Virginia and I were bantering back and forth about, hey, I need an image and we got to go something that's got the backside, front side, it's kind of hard to find needlepoint stuff that was front and back. And my very text to her is, okay, this is the idea, but I'm not really crazy about the bear and the bubble bath. But I did find it ironic that the message was, don't rush me. And I'm going to admit to you that the moments I struggle the most with this whole nothing's happening thing, the moments I struggle the most, even though I know it and I can preach it to you, like the the moments I struggle the most is when I convince myself that I need to be in a hurry and God doesn't appear to be. And there's not just a message in this of don't rush God, because you won't. (laughs) Cracks me up when people go, people always say, I think I I don't want to get ahead of God. Uh, He's faster than you. He's faster than you. I know what you mean, though. But you're not going to rush him. But it also needs, don't don't rush me. A personal God, I, I... One of the things that I pray at this season in my life is, God, I want to learn what it means to be urgent but not in a hurry. There's a difference. I want to be urgent with the mission to which you've called me. I want to be urgent with the direction that you've given me, but I don't want to be in a hurry because when I get in a hurry, often I miss the very part of the journey that God is calling me to. And when I get in a hurry, I soon start attempting, right, to to outrun God, if you will. And before you know it, I'm, I'm frustrated because God's doing nothing. But I want to leave you with just an encouraging picture that sometimes... In the chaos, God does give us some clarity. Um, We could probably share stories across the room of things that we thought God was doing, things that we prayed for, things that didn't happen for a long time, and then later, something shows up in the whole process, and all of a sudden you go, oh, this is why this took so long. And I personally think that that oh is like one out of the 99 things that God is actually accomplishing in why it's taking so long. But sometimes he gives us little glimpse of the front side of the needle point so, so that we know, right, he really is at work here. The end of this particular chapter, um, after Felix, the governor, moves on, Festus becomes the governor um, and, and at one point, he's now, he's now inherited what Felix had, and he's got the same problem. What do I do with this guy, Paul? He makes the, the recommendation that perhaps Paul should be sent back to Jerusalem for trial. And this is the point in the story, <clears throat> excuse me, where Paul appeals to Caesar, which means he's a Roman citizen, and therefore he appeals to Caesar's court. Well, that means that Festus has to get him there But in order for Festus, the governor, to send Paul to the Roman court, there must be a written accusation. (laughs) Like, there's got to be a reason. And Festus, just like Felix, is still wrestling with, okay, they're arguing over the resurrection, and they're arguing over this, but from a Roman law point of view, he doesn't have anything in order to send him. And so he's sort of stuck. Well, When Festus becomes the new governor, the neighboring king, we're told, Agrippa, comes to visit him. Now, this is Herod Agrippa, all right? Herod is the key word. His grandpa was the one who killed all the babies around Bethlehem. His uncle is the one who beheaded John the Baptist. His father was the one who beheaded James. We're talking quite an impressive legacy here. He shows up with Bernice. Bernice is Agrippa's sister. You're like, oh, when I read that, I read that like they were husband and wife. 
Yes, you did, because it's written that way. You're like, no. Yes. Let's just say they acted in every way as though they were husband and wife, and according to the history books, the whole part of the world knew it. Festus is more powerful, but he wants to learn something. He wants to figure out something, and so he leans into this Roman Jewish king, Agrippa. And in one of the most dramatic, I think, scenes, if we could actually recreate this scene, it would be one of the most dramatic scenes that you would see anywhere in the New Testament. It reads like this in Acts chapter 25, verse 23. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, pomp, that weird word. It it means what you would imagine. I mean, it's like as big as you could possibly paint this picture that's how big it is. Think, think royal robes, all the glitter, all the glitz, everything that could be a part of that. They came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Anybody want to guess what Paul's going to talk about? And all of a sudden, in the middle of all this chaos, we get a glimpse of the needlepoint on the front side, and Paul is standing before an audience where the tentacles from that audience, can you imagine how many people are affected just from the the people in this one room, how many people they oversee, right? How many families they're connected to, how many cities they impact. In this one moment, Paul gets to testify to the greatness of God. It's like this little glimpse in the midst of God going, I'm still working. I'm working. I love this scene. To me, it's a needlepoint scene because my question is, who's on trial here? On the back side of the needlepoint, it looks like Paul's on trial. On the front side of the needlepoint, it's actually everybody else in the room because God's working. Who's, who's really the most powerful person in the room on the backside of the needlepoint? I guess it could be argued that, that, that Festus would be or, or the king would actually obviously have some power. And I mean, we're talking high-ranking military people, but on the front side, I would argue that it's this little short Jewish guy who apparently doesn't see very good and maybe he's in chains but he is leaning into the sovereign God of the universe who holds all of time and eternity, even the details of his life. I would say on the front side of the needle point, the most powerful person in the room is not who you think. I wonder who from that room eventually turned to Jesus. You wonder. And if they did, Did they bring that news back to families? Did they bring that news back to their cities? A news reporter once asked Mrs. Einstein if she understood the theory of relativity. (laughs) She replied, no, but I know Albert and he can be trusted. I'm going to admit to you, I do not always understand why Jesus moves the way he does. But I'm going to declare to you today, but I know Jesus, and he can be trusted. Will you? Let's pray. God, today, perhaps the best place for us to start is is to ask you to forgive us. God, forgive us for when during the perceived delays we have complained. We've complained about a loss, 
And the reason is, God, that we didn't have eyes to see that the God-given mission that you have put on our life, it is bigger than any circumstance that we're in. God, will you forgive us? And God, will you forgive us if in those perceived delays there have been moments that we have compromised, moments that we decided not to speak of you because of what it would cost, moments that perhaps we have attempted to take things into our own hands because it didn't feel like you were capable of achieving the goal. God, will you forgive us? And then God, will you forgive us in those moments that we actually feared defeat because we forgot? God, if that if you called us to something, the only the only person who could ever stop that is you. God, we're about to sing the truth that you are the God who never fails. We are about to sing the truth that you are the God who is never late. That even in the lowest of valleys, when our heart is weary, when our heart is heavy, we will bless your name. God, God, may you bless your people in this moment as we are gathered together. God, different places, different arenas, but right now as your people are gathered together, God, as we have the privilege of lifting our voices, God, may it be so that today you will, you will form something different in us that in the lowest valley and when our heart is heavy, we will bless your name. But the reason is because of who you are, a sovereign God, a God of providence, a God who can be trusted, and a God who always loves. On this day, God, may we see enough of the front side of the needle point that we will trust the backside. And now we bless your name. It's in that great name that we pray today, the name of Jesus. Amen.